we often ask the question, what happened to make such a change? What happened in the break? What was said? What was thought? There are countless examples in sport, but I'm banned from using sports illustrations. And so there are countless examples in films and in literature where a key word, a key meeting, a key moment, maybe the reception of a a letter or a vital bit of information that is shared changes everything. And having said that I'm banned from using sports illustrations, let me give you one. But it's not football, so I'm guessing most of you aren't into watching cycling documentaries. Neither am I, normally. But there was one cycling documentary about a guy who decided to investigate how much difference using drugs in cycling made. And so he set out to uh, effectively legally drug himself and and then see how much improvement uh, the drugs made. And so he starts making this documentary and he hires a doctor who will give him the steroids and will monitor his performance and try to to blood dope him to to make him as good as possible. And so you start watching this documentary and he's recording his times and he's telling you about how he gets on in the races. And then this doctor comes in and he's talking to the doctor. And then the doctor suddenly reveals that he's very experienced in this because he dopes all the Russian athletes. And you see that the guy who's making the documentary just almost double take as he realizes this doctor has just confessed effectively to Russian state doping in sport. And the documentary changes like that. Suddenly there's no more cycling. It's all the investigation as to how big this doping scandal is. And it's why, you know, currently Russians are still banned from from competing under the Russian flag in international competitions. Or perhaps you've seen and know of the effect of the speech given by by Martin Luther King. Famously, he said, I have a dream. And those words and that speech impacted countless people. We've arrived at a point in the book of Exodus, in our walk through this story of how God saves his people from slavery, And we've reached a point where there's a change. Last week, Paul was uh, speaking to us about about Moses and and Moses' cowardice and the lack of control. And Moses says, he doesn't want the job. Here am I, send someone else, I think was the title. Next week we will find Moses standing alongside his brother before the most powerful man in the world and demanding that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, release this army of slaves. How does the cowards go to the the most courageous man? What takes place to, to change Moses? How does the story change? What happened in the break? Well, the passage Denise read to us is what happened in the break. And it is, at the heart, Ian's already mentioned it, an incredibly strange, not least that that little section 
when God comes to kill Moses. But what I want to suggest to you is what takes place in the break, what takes place in these verses, is the instilling into Moses an understanding, a knowledge, an acceptance of God's strange plan of salvation, the strange shape of God's salvation plan. This strange passage gives us the answers to what has changed. And it's through this, as we walk through this with with Moses, we're going to see how Moses begins to understand what God is doing. But he doesn't just understand it on a head level. It gets into his heart. He experiences who God is. And he experiences how God saves. And then he gets to hear and to see the remarkable benefit of God's saving work. We're going to break this section down into uh, three uh, subsections, if you like. The foundations of salvation, the means, and then the goal of salvation. But what I want to do is just, as we start, is just note a couple of the themes that the the author of this uh, uh, narrative account, Moses himself, the Bible tells us, things that Moses just wants to draw our attention to two themes that are going to run through. And the, the first one is that this story is grounded in family language. And so for verse 18, Moses speaks to his father-in-law, Jethro. And then in 4 verse 20, we get this little detail about Moses taking his wife and sons and putting them on a donkey and starting back to Egypt. What's really interesting is that as we read on in the Exodus story, it appears that they never went to Egypt. That this event seemingly makes Moses decide or them decide, you know what, we'll stay here until this is all sorted out. But we're still told, and it's though Moses is trying to draw our attention to something about family. So let's hold that in our mind. And then secondly, there's a focus on life and living. So, 4 verse 18 again, Moses, when he goes to Jethro, says, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see any, if any of them are still alive. 4 verse 20, a couple of verses later, we're told, <clears throat> sorry, uh, 4 verse 19, The Lord said to Moses, had said to Moses, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So on the one hand, Moses is talking about the people who might hopefully still be alive back in Egypt. And on the other, as we start into this, God's saying, all those that wanted to kill you are dead. And so God is putting on our minds as we go into the rest of these verses and the rest of the story, just this category of living, dying, life. Just hold those two things in your mind as we walk through and just see how... God's going to draw our attention back to them and and use those themes. It's almost as if God's just given us a little taster. Okay, family, okay, life. Got it? Everybody awake? Family, life, good. Let's think then firstly about the foundations of salvation or the foundations for salvation. So Moses is on his way back to Egypt and he's returning with more than he left with. He came by himself, running away, And now he's coming back and he's got a wife and two sons. But more than that, God is going to give him something else to to put in his emotional luggage. 
a clear and concise expectation about how this mission, this rescue is going to play out. And it revolves not so much on Moses. It revolves, although Moses is important, it revolves about God. So we looked at verse 21 and and verse 20. We see that Moses has got the the staff of God in his hands. The staff by which he's going to do the, the first signs to prove to the people of Israel that Moses is from God. And so he's got the staff and he's got the signs and he's going to have staff of another sort because he's going to have his brother. We'll get to that in a few verses time. But more importantly is the God who is sending him, the God who is in control. When we think about the, the foundation for salvation, the starting point is God's character. And if you weren't here last week, let me point you a bit again back to, to Paul's sermon, who, where Paul brought out some of who God is. The God of love, the God of justice. You can listen again on our website. But listen now to what God says to Moses. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, Let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Who is the God behind the salvation plan? Who is the God whom the Bible says that he calls the the, the Lord of salvation? Who is the one whom God's people say the Lord is my salvation and what Moses needs to realize is that that God is a God who is in control over every aspect of Moses of Pharaoh of the people of the circumstances all of it The Bible uses the word sovereign to describe God. A God who is in control of all people and all circumstances across all time and all history without exception. He is a great big God. But he is a God then who chooses The foundation for salvation is a God who chooses. And he tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel, this people under your control, Pharaoh, living in your lands, these people, this nation who came from one family, who came from one man, Abraham, these are my family. Now, back in chapter 3, as as God begins to speak to Moses, God has called them my people. He has expressed his, if you like, ownership, his commitment, 
his connection to them. Chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 10, and elsewhere. And it emphasizes, God emphasizes the fact that they, they belong to him. They have his affection. Not in some sort of cute card on Valentine's Day sort of way, but in a deeply committed way. God has set his love upon them. He deeply cares for this people. They are claimed and coveted by God. But when God says and tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, he is going further than that it's not only that they are loved and chosen it's not less than that but it is more the idea of a firstborn is one of legacy God is connected himself to this people and saying I am tying myself and my glory and my heritage to them I will be defined in some way by them he is tying his reputation to this group of people they are my legacy as well as my loved ones the fame and renown of God to all of his creatures in heaven and on earth is tied up with this people these people that are called and chosen, that are loved and yet also are limited. These people who are weak and feeble, slow and faithless, those, these people who will fail to obey God, who will be slow to learn about God, who will be little in faith, quick to complain, and basically pretty rubbish in almost every way God says they are my first born these people who in the chapters to come will forget what God has done for them who will want to run back to their old masters who will want to put back on the chains of slavery that he has released them from it's to people well, to be blunt, it's to people like you and me who God ties his legacy, his loving legacy to. This son and the idea of the firstborn will rule on behalf of the father. This son will represent the father to the world. And we understand that, don't we? You've only got to hear, you know, go on Facebook and go on a local Facebook group when some youths have been misbehaving in the town centre. And you'll only have to get a few comments down before you're somebody, somebody will spark up for blame the parents. What? Where are the parents? Because that's what kids do. They reflect on their parents for good or for ill. And God ties himself to this people group Israel and it's remarkable but this message is for Pharaoh Pharaoh of course is a king and he had his own firstborn son 
somebody who he was looking to instill his legacy into somebody to carry on the family name somebody to expand the empire pharaoh would have understood when another emperor emperor another king says talks about his firstborn son pharaoh would have understood that language understood what god was committing himself to this message is to pharaoh and speaks into his own hopes for his own son and god warns pharaoh that the price of refusing to let god's son go the nation of israel the price will be the death of his own firstborn son God is saying to Pharaoh through Moses, I will not be mocked, I will not be matched. And it is strong language. This is not a bedtime story for infants. This is real and vivid and, well, strange, isn't it, to our ears? Uncomfortable? Is this what God is like towards his enemies? Is God vindictive? What does it look like for God to be sovereign, not just in a here's a happy story way, but for God to be sovereign in judgment upon his enemies? And doesn't God say here that he will harden Pharaoh's heart? That's what it says, isn't it? Verse 21. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Well, like every good preacher at this point, I'm going to say, you've got to come back to hear the answer to that. But it's okay to ask that question. That's hard. But let us not, in response to it, reduce God. Let's not make him smaller. We're going to examine the theme of Pharaoh's hard hearts. But to give you a clue, as we read through the, the plagues and the accounts of the plagues, as Moses interacts with Pharaoh, the Bible tells us both that his heart was hardened in a neutral way. It tells us clearly that God hardened his heart. But it also tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The scriptures are clear that God is just. God does not force pharaoh to act against his own will god truly gives us what we want but like i say we will come back to that question i think after christmas but put ourselves again in moses's shoes why does god tell moses this at this point moses needs to know and we need to know how things are going to play out. Not the details, but the result. God wins. God wins. Sin will be exposed for what it is. Sin will be punished rightly and justly. No one can oppose God and ultimately get away with it. And no one can separate the Father from his beloved Son. God's unstoppable, never giving up, always and forever love will win out. 
and God's justice will be done. Moses, here is the foundation for the salvation that will be won. It's not in you. It's not in your strength. It is in God. A sovereign, loving, just God. No matter what it currently sounds or looks like. Moses, get this in your heart before you walk before Pharaoh. God wins. Moses, get this in your heart before Pharaoh will promise and then turn his back on it. God wins. Friends, get this in your heart. God wins. And he is in control of all people and all circumstances across all time and history. This is the foundation. But what about the means of salvation? So after that wonderful headlining speech that God gives to to Moses, we come back to the narrative. Moses on his way to Egypt. And we come back to the journey and one of the most complex and perplexing bits of the Bible, at least according to all the commentators. Because after commissioning Moses to his task, Moses, you are my man. Moses, despite your weakness, despite your reluctance, you are the man I'm going to send. And then despite Moses' cowardice, God has stuck with him. This is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm going to use you. He's equipped him. He's empowered him. He's given him his promises. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What? What? We call this message the strange shape of salvation. This is strange. Here's a list of questions that we might ask of this bit of the story. Why does God seek to kill a man he has called? What does that tell us about what God is like? Does God have schizophrenia? Has he got bipolar? Why does it involve foreskins? That's weird. How does Zipporah know what to do? I don't think I've ever, you know, I don't think they teach this in school. What to do if God turns up to kill your husband? Whip out a knife? And to be honest, even if we all read Hebrew and we could read the original Hebrew text, you know, we'd have more questions, not less. Because it reads like this. He sent something to kill him and then she did this to him and then he, it's all he, 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 no names. And so we sit down with this passage and you're trying to work out who the he is at various points. What is going on? Why does God seek to kill Moses? Well, here's my suggestion to us. The remedy reveals the malady. What do I mean by that? I mean this, if somebody walks in now through that door, late, we'll all look in slight judgmental at being how late they were, but if they had a pot on their arm, you know, a cast, okay, if you're not from around here, okay, we would look at them and go, oh, that person's got a a pot on their arm, a cast on their arm, they've probably got a broken arm. 
They probably, you know, damaged their arm in some way. In the same way, when we look at this story, and we'll read it again now, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom, bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And we look at that and we think, well, what did Zipporah do? When God turns up to, to kill Moses, she circumcises her son. So just like we see the pot on somebody's arm and think broken arm, we would see, okay, if the answer is circumcision, what's the problem? And on one level, we're just going to say very physically, very practically, the son had clearly not been circumcised before this. It's a one and done deal. Okay? We're not getting into pictures or anything like that. And what this does is tells us to go back. To go back earlier into the Bible story when God was speaking to Abraham, the father of the nation that became Israel. God had made wonderful promises to Abraham. How from that one man God would make a great nation that Abraham's descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And that those people would be a blessing to the world and God would bless them and, and give them a land, a home for themselves. And with that blessing and with that promise came some conditions for them to follow. One of which was to mark out who were God's people by circumcising the males in the family. That was an act of obedience, an act of faithful trust to say, God, we believe your promises. We believe you will do what you have said. And we will mark ourselves out. And what is apparent is that Moses has not done this to his son. Moses, the great rescuer, the great deliverer, the one chosen by God, had not obeyed the commands, had not kept the covenant. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 17 later on. Don't switch off just yet. And we know that Moses has been living in a foreign land, born in Egypt and then living in the wilderness and so he's not been around his people. Maybe he's got careless. We know that he's got a wife who is not from the family, not from the nation. And perhaps there's some suggestion that they have talked about it and she doesn't want to circumcise their children. I think there's some suggestion that they've had some interaction about it because, because she does know what to do instantly but we are speculating Moses had been disobedient God's chosen man had not been faithful and remarkably when God rightly comes calling for the disobedience Zipporah knows what to do she is obedient at this point she circumcises their son and she puts the the the, the bloody results onto the feet possibly of the boy or moses 
I think it makes more sense for that to be Moses. And she turns away the rightful, just anger of God. God would not be unjust to strike Moses down because he had disobeyed. That's what's going on here. The second question to ask is, well, why would God do this? And I want us to think of two things under this heading. Firstly, let's think about the pattern. Let me speak those, those words to you again. When Zipporah circumcises her son and she takes the bloody foreskin, she turns away God's wrath against Moses by using the blood of an innocent party. It wasn't the son's decision to circumcise himself. He wasn't at fault. But it's his blood that turns away the right wrath of God. This is the pattern of salvation that God is teaching to Moses. How can guilty people escape just punishment? Through the innocent blood spilt by another. That's what God is teaching Moses here. This, God is saying to Moses, as you head into Egypt, this is how it's going to work out. God does not play favourites. God does not overlook the sins of one and magnify the sins of others in the way that we do when we pick sides. God is just. God is fair. But he is also merciful and gracious. There is a cost for disobedience to a great, good, loving God. And Israel will be saved... Because the blood of an innocent will protect them. As the story goes on, God will send plagues upon Egypt. And the final plague is the death of the firstborn. And God sends, comes, and, and he will kill the firstborn of sinners of those who have rejected him, of those who have doubted him, of those who have failed to live up to the standard that he has called them to, of those who have rejected the conscience that he has placed within them, of those who have bended the knee to false gods, of those who have trusted in themselves rather than a good God. God will say the right and just punishment for the rejection of such a good God is death. But Israel are spared. God in his mercy says, instead of you, take a lamb. Spread, kill the lamb. And spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And God will pass over those deserving of death. If an innocent blood has been spilt, if a lamb has been Killed in the place of the guilty. This is the pattern of salvation. And so Moses is being prepared for the mission. 
But beyond the blood of an innocent lamb, there is the blood of the innocent son. Beyond Exodus and beyond Egypt, the pattern for this world, for all who have rejected God's goodness, who have hardened their hearts against his rule. God says, you are deserving of death, but I will shed the blood of my son so that you might not die, instead that you might live. Moses, learn the pattern. This is what God is like. He, God the Father, sends God the Son to take on humanity and to willingly shed his blood so that the guilty might go free, so that those who deserve death may instead receive life. The Son who is a Lamb. Moses understand that this is what it takes for people to be saved not being good enough not changing things around yourself not being born into the right family not being better than the people you compare yourself to no this is the means of salvation this is the pattern innocent blood spilt on behalf of the guilty But Moses, it's not just a pattern. Moses, it's personal. It is crucial that he understands that first and foremost, he is not a deliverer for others. First and foremost, he is one who needs to be saved himself. We have already sung today that line, it was my sin that held him there. And we could have sung other great hymns that express the reality of men and women who know the personal conviction of God that I am guilty. That God has laid bare my thoughts, my motives, and that I am deserving not of life but of death. And so the hymn writers write, and can it be that I should gain? an interest in the saviour's blood or another says my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul there is something incredibly personal about the great work of god of salvation as god speaks into your heart and says yes you are guilty and yes, I am willing to save. Christ died for me. Moses cannot deliver God's people, cannot be a leader with integrity until he understands that he is one who needs to be and has been saved. We all know the, the horrible mess that comes when you have leaders who do not have integrity. And I could make a list, I could spend the next half an hour listing off just names of people who have made all sorts of mess, politically and personally, and because they have not imbibed the message that they preach. Moses needs to understand that he needs the salvation of God. It's not just something for them out there. It's something that I need. 
And I want to pause here and just say this is a lesson for all of us. If we would in any way, shape or form lead in God's family and God's kingdom. And that might be in a a role as elders in the church. But that's certainly true of those of us who are parents. And those of us who lead in ministries. And those of us who would want to stand up amongst our friends. And set an example to those around us. You cannot lead unless you first receive grace. You cannot lead effectively and successfully. Healthy leadership in all of those and and every other sphere of life comes and flows from humility. The humility that says, I am only here because God has been merciful to me. I am in myself no better. Goodness grows out of that grace. And to remember first that you are a sheep, not a shepherd. Remember that you have been saved. And that will enable you to lead and parent and to be a friend who can empathize with the weak and needy. For such are you. Let's think thirdly about the goal of salvation. We read of Aaron coming to Moses. They meet on the mountain of God. And there's an affectionate family reunion. Brothers meeting together. Aaron kisses him. And then Moses shares with him all that God has been doing. I imagine that as they meet on the mountain of God, Moses is just going, Aaron, look at that bush. You will not believe what happened that bush I, I think that's there's got to be some of that involved listen to what God has said listen to how God has seen the misery and suffering of his people listen to what God has promised to do Aaron and I'm so glad you're here because I am not up for this and then they go back into Egypt it seems and they meet with the elders of the people And then it plays out exactly as God said it would in chapter 3, verse 14 to 17. Aaron speaks on behalf of Moses. So Moses shares the message. uh, Moses is like God unto Aaron. And then Aaron speaks to the people. And he speaks the words that God has given. And he shows the signs that God has given. And wonderfully, (laughs) let me read these words to you. Verse 31, and they believed. And they believed. They heard what Aaron said. They saw the signs. And they heard what God was saying to them through Moses, through Aaron, that there is a God who sees all that is taking place. And there is a God who cares about your circumstances. And there is a God who is acting to deliver you. And they believed and they worshipped. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, 
they bow down and worship. This is remarkable, isn't it? This is a people who are still enslaved. On one level, nothing has changed. They're still in Egypt. They're still enslaved. They are not yet rescued. But when they hear what God has said, they believe and they worship him. And I'm left asking the question, how? How can a people in slavery worship God? How can embattled and embittered people praise God in the midst of the most difficult circumstances? And then we look into the history of the church and we look around the world at Christians other than ourselves and across 2,000 years of history and we find that that is exactly what God draws people to. He brings people to worship him in the midst of their struggles. And my mind turns to the slaves in America, African-American slaves who sang in their slavery, who sung and praised God and put their hope in him. I've been reading this week the autobiography of a a man called Frederick Douglass one of the the first sort of freed slaves he wrote this about his experience and the experience of another slave she stands she sits she staggers she falls she groans she dies and there are none of her children or grandchildren present to wipe from her wrinkled brow the cold sweat of death or to place beneath the sod her fallen remains Will not a righteous God visit for these things? This is just one part of his experience. And it's, it's brutal. He goes on to say, From my earliest recollection, I date the entertainment of a deep conviction that slavery would not always be able to hold me within its foul embrace. And in the darkest hours of my career in slavery, this living word of faith and spirit of hope departed not from me, but remained like ministering angels to cheer me through the gloom. This good spirit was from God, and to him I offer thanksgiving and praise. In the worst of circumstances, God enables his people to worship him. To believe beyond all evidence that God is good and that God will deliver on what He has promised. What a remarkable testimony. This is no wealthy, easy, comfortable Christianity. This is the reality of a true and living God in the worst of circumstances, enabling people to believe that he will rescue. That this life is not all that there is. That there is goodness and light on the darkest of days. Friends, this is the goal of salvation. That people would come to worship God 
And we, Moses sees a picture of it here. Before he even gets to Pharaoh. Before the plagues begin. Before the exodus happens. Before the, the people of God, as God has promised to Moses, will gather on the mountain of the Lord and worship him. They believe and they worship. And this is the goal of salvation. Not for a moment, but for all eternity. This is eternal life. To know the Father. To delight in Him. To rest in His goodness. To trust in His plans. To find comfort and safety under His rule. This is what it means to be children of God. To know the Father. To have been rescued from our sin through the Son that He sent. And then to know Him forever. Some of you are walking through very, very difficult circumstances. Some of it known, much of it not. And for all of us, we will walk through dark days, maybe not to compare with the slavery of the Egyptians. But life is hard. But the goal of salvation is that we worship God. Sometimes that worship comes easily and sometimes it is hard. Sometimes we do not know what the answers are to the problems that we face. We do not know how God will bring about goodness. But the pattern of salvation assures us that the God of salvation is at work to draw us to worship him. On Monday, Bobby Charlton, the great footballer. Here we go, another sports illustration. This is not in the notes, I'm sorry. Bobby Charlton's funeral took place in Manchester Cathedral. Hundreds of people gathered. And one of the newspaper reports said how fitting it is that they sang the hymn, How Great Thou Art. I thought, how badly can you miss the mark? Yes, he was a great footballer. And by all accounts, he was, in a sense, a good man. But that song recognizes how great God is. The Lord of salvation. On Tuesday, a few of us gathered in a care home with people towards the end of their life, we didn't say that, well, that would have been inappropriate. Struggling with hardship and dementia. And we sang, How Great Thou Art. And it was equally as true of this God. How great thou art. Even before things are fully and finally finished. It is fitting and right and good and healing to worship this God. We are going to sing that hymn together. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing.